You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers with Saya, Anissa, and Boroma. Hi everyone, this is Saya. This is Anissa. And today we have ah, a really special guest. Hello. So we have Stefan Lee, author of K-Pop Confidential and K-Pop Revolution. And Stefan, can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, my name is Stefan Lee. I'm so excited to be on Drama Over Flowers. And like you guys said, I'm the author of K-Pop Confidential and K-Pop Revolution and also a former journalist and in general, just a fan of lots of things. So I'm so excited to be here. We're, We're so, so excited, excited to, to have you. <laughs> yeah. <Yay. laughs> We've been kind of on a long hiatus because like Asaya kind of mentioned, we were kind of burnt out and also like Ramadan happens. So we kind mm-hmm. of tend to be lighter on Ramadan. But this is a really nice way to get back into the swing of things. Mm-hmm. We've been really looking forward to talking to you. Oh, totally. And like, I get burnout. Burnout, especially lately, is so real. And it's funny how like being at home more often can make you more tired. <laughs> but it's real. <laughs> it's very, very true. true. Yeah. So I've spent the last, what is it, maybe three or four days sort of inside Candace's world. So can you give us an elevator pitch for K-pop Revolution, which is actually the sequel to K-pop Confidential? And the sequel just released, is it a month ago? Yeah. Okay, I'll just kind of pitch, like, in pitching the first one, I'll also end up kind of pitching the second one automatically. But um, so K-Pop Confidential is about a Korean-American girl named Candace Park, who lives in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and actually auditions for a K-pop company behind the biggest boy group in the world, SLK, and they're looking for their first ever girl group. And she auditions just kind of on a whim. She doesn't actually know that much about K-pop. And it's actually her non-Korean friends who know way more about it and um, introduce her to it, which I feel like is very real for what the fandom is right now. And she actually makes the audition. And then that doesn't mean she's in the group. That means she has to fly to Korea to enter a trainee program. And that's all what K-pop Confidential is about. Kind of the struggle to... Um, debut, because I don't know if everyone who's not like a K-pop fan knows that um, the K-pop trainee program is so difficult and it's so extreme. And it's almost taken on mythical status among fans (laughs) because um, idols usually can't or won't fully talk about it in detail. So but we, you know, we've all heard kind of reports of what it's like. Um, So that's what the first book really is about. And the kind of emotional theme of it is how much Candace will allow people to sort of write her own story for her versus her speaking up about, you know, how she wants to be successful and how she wants to express herself. And then K-pop revolution is beyond training. And it's actually about a rookie girl group that actually debuts which Candace is in, and it's all about the first year of being an idol and all those hallmarks like music shows and um, all those things that we love to see from real K-pop groups. And the stakes even get higher, and it has to do with Candace um, dealing with the industry and also the fandom and all the great things that are so fun but also difficult about that. And um, if the first book was about like learning to use your voice for good, or to, you know, advocate for yourself and others. The second book is about actually turning that into action, which is always so much harder. So that's kind of the long elevator pitch. (laughs) 
Beautiful. We were going to the 99th floor, so that was perfectly timed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The mirror walled elevator at the SAY headquarters going to the 99th yes. floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, as I was reading this, like before we got started recording, Saya mentioned that she's a huge YA fan and like, yeah. that's like her, the genre of her heart. I am not as much of a YA person. Like I have enjoyed a lot of YA. I have to um, say I really enjoyed your books, even though I'm not usually a YA oh, person. Thank you. Um, but it also kind of reminded me of like a Korean idol drama with a protagonist who's kind of like a fish out of water. Like, so for example, with You're Beautiful, you know, she's a nun in training, just right. pretends <laughs> to be a boy in an idol group and hijinks ensue. And, but this time you did it in a really smart way by making it like that cultural difference of like a Korean American girl who barely speaks Korean, which mm-hmm. as you said, is like a very common experience for us second gen kids where you're not really, you don't feel like you really belong in the ancestral homeland. Yeah. Um, so I really loved that. It felt a bit K-drama like, but with a really mm-hmm. interesting twist. So I wanted to ask like up top, are you a K-drama fan? And what do you think that your book shares with a K-drama? And how do you think like a book format is different from TV? Yeah, well, kind of going back to YA, um, I'm with you there. I'm actually not primarily a YA reader. Um, And actually, when I got my book deal, I was actually working on a different book that was an adult book. But I always enjoyed YA, you know, every now and then. And I always thought that somebody should write a K-pop YA. (laughs) (laughs) And um, mine wasn't the first of like the major publishers to come out. I think that was actually... um, Marine Gu and then um, Jessica Jung. But Mm -hmm. um, I started thinking about this like maybe back in 2015 as like something that someone should do (laughs) because (laughs) I really thought that K-pop, especially the trainee storyline or the whole culture was so well suited for YA, not just because of like the built-in kind of drama, like, you know, dating bands Mm. (laughs) in K-pop is like such like a... YA trope. It's perfectly made for a YA trope. Only it's real life. Absolutely. Like my my editors actually thought I'd made that up because they were like, oh, that's so perfect. That's so Hunger Games. And I was actually like, no, it's real. Um, yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Actually, when I was first thinking about a K-pop book, this was when a lot of dystopian novels were very popular, especially mm. in young, young adult. And weirdly, I actually thought that K-pop really worked well for that, even though it is real life. Just like, you know, how different it is for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, It's like a whole different world almost. So that's kind of where like the YA came from. And the K-drama part, I am a fan of K-dramas, but I'm actually not one of those people who like devours a lot of K-dramas. I love watching the occasional one that like really speaks to me. I actually love, okay, this is like kind of like a older person K-drama, but I really love Sky Castle. <laughs> I also uh, love Sky Castle. I think everyone yeah. does. I watched it with my mom. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it's an older person. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Because weirdly, I was r- watching it while I was writing the first book. And um, it weirdly helped a lot, even though the subject matter yeah. has nothing to do with it. Just kind of the extreme like expectations and kind of like, Um, The theme of K-pop Confidential is always, like, living up to, like, the expectations of the generation ahead of you Mm. and, like, following those rules. And it weirdly helped so much. And definitely the fish out of water, um, 
there aren't that many K-dramas that center on Korean Americans. Um, but I do, did kind of follow the fish out of water thing. And I also think that an outsider kind of being at the mercy of a big company felt very chebble and very K-drama too. <laughs> so, yes. Um, yes. yeah. Oh, and definitely the Mean Girl storyline um, with Candace and Helena. I definitely saw Helena having the like half bangs and like the mean girl look. <laughs> <laughs> so we were yeah. going to ask you this question later, but I'm going to ask you it now. Yeah. Because as I was reading it, I definitely visualized very specific people in certain roles. Mm-hmm. Do you as well? Like, who do you see as playing your characters if you have? That? Yeah. Yeah, you like know, dream casting. <laughs> no, totally. And I do not say this as like, I think that these actual people have the same personalities as these characters. I just like mean by like looks wise. So like I have like very specific visions of what the characters look like and they don't look like any one person in real life, but like a hybrid or something. The main character, Candace, I actually like now I only see her as the girl on the cover. I forget how I saw her when I was writing her. Oh, no, that's how I feel about Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, uh, yeah, the yeah. film versions have overtaken yeah. what I imagined. Exactly. But um, with Helena, I actually see her as actually a young version of Tiffany Young, but blonde. Mm. And again, that has nothing to do with her personality. <laughs> it's just like the look. And then like Adam, I picture her looking as like a blend of like... Irene from Red Velvet and like just like visual girl (laughs) right right yeah and um actually weirdly I thought of Jinju as a young Park Bom from 21 (laughs) so actually a lot of my references are second gen (laughs) k-pop I I only really know second gen k-pop because that's when I got into it and like this third fourth gen I'm just like it makes me feel old I can't keep up so yeah I'm with you listening to it but like I it's like hard for me to get like granular with like each person. Right. I can't be the, that like hardcore fandom where I like learn everybody's names and I know who they are. And, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. but like kind of like going back to your previous question, but this one too. Um, like the reason why in a lot of my dialogue, I did kind of think about like K-drama delivery, <laughs> like mm. the big reactions. And some readers have pointed out that I do a lot of the interrobang, which is a question mark and an exclamation point at the same time. And I don't do that in my other writing, but for these books, it just kind of came out naturally because you kind of see that kind of reaction in K-dramas all the time. Mm. What? Like her. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting how these like forms of media kind of like bleed into each other, like in your mind, and then it kind of comes through. Exactly. Yeah. So like, I don't know, it's fun because I do put some elements that feel super dramatic and like comedic in the way that K-dramas are, but then... Also with books that you can really get into a character's head and make it feel really real. So I, d- I try to do both. Um, so that was really fun. On that note, um, our co-host who couldn't be here, she actually listened to the audiobook, oh, awesome. And she was yeah. saying that it was amazing the way that it was narrated by, is it Joy Osmansky? Yes. And she wanted to uh, ask you, like, did you have any input in choosing the narrator like, how did she get chosen? And she sang. Yeah. I heard she sang. Yes. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. I did get to choose the narrator. Um, so I think this would work even if it wasn't the pandemic when I was choosing. But um, Scholastic sent over six 
auditions, basically. So six actors actually read from the same chapter. And it was a chapter that included a song in it. Um, so everybody actually did choose to sing, even though that wasn't a requirement. Um, I would have been happy if they just like read it with like a certain voice. I was just very open. Um, but it's funny because um, they also chose a chapter that had a lot of Korean words in it. And um, there were some actors who were amazing and had perfect Korean pronunciation. But um, Joy Osmansky, you know, maybe you can tell from her name, um, she was actually adopted and did not grow up speaking any Korean at all. And like, I am definitely not perfectly fluent in Korean, but I at least like grew up hearing it and speaking it somewhat. So um, my pronunciation is okay. But um, it was very clear that she had never, you know, she had no familiarity, but her spirit was just so right for it. And I was just kind of like, I love her characterization so much that like the pronunciation stuff is just so secondary. And it also kind of fits in line with Candace's storyline yeah. because yeah. Um, her pronunciation isn't that great. And um, she is definitely not fluent at the v very beginning or even throughout most of the first book or even the second book. I would say that she becomes like, comfortable by the second book. Yeah, so it was really like an interesting thing because um, I actually had to work with Joy a lot on the pronunciations. And it was so weird to, for that I was like the expert on this because I'm like, in what world am I the expert on uh, Korean pronunciation? But like, it was a really cool experience for me and for her. And it was just like, it kind of mirrored the whole storyline of the book. And like, she actually ended up learning a lot and started to feel way more comfortable actually doing more Korean and other types of narration too. Oh, wow. And it, it was just like so inspiring. We actually became friends because um, of this whole experience. And she also kind of dealt with kind of feelings of like, oh, like how Korean American am I? And like throughout this whole experience, we were just like, we are equally Korean American, no matter <laughs> like, you know, how we were raised. So um, it was really cool. That's really lovely. That is so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so speaking about like inhabiting this character and who gets to inhabit this character, I was surprised that you chose to um, write Candace as a first person protagonist and she's a teenage girl, which like usually, especially with debut novels, people tend to write something that's pretty close to their own perspective. Yeah. So what, why did you make that choice? I'm really curious to know. Yeah. So I... I do get this question a lot and uh, I like this question and it makes sense that I get it a lot. But um, for me, when it came time to coming up with this plot, I naturally just completely went from the very beginning to a teenage girl. And it partly has to do with my own interests. Like um, I have just always growing up, have always been more interested in like female stories. And, you know, I am a gay cis male, but like, I've never been as interested in even gay cis male stories as I have in like, female stories of all kinds. And I'm like that with what I read, the musicians that I stand. like, other than BTS, I'm like, almost exclusively interested in girl groups and K-pop. And that's the same goes for, you know, Western music. Um, I don't think I ever listen to male singers almost ever <laughs> oh, wow. and even with podcasts I'm just I just like gravitate more to female voices and I also just don't think inherently that quote-unquote male or female like 
people necessarily think differently just based on their gender anyway, even though there are obviously differences in experiences. So it was just kind of a no brainer for me that like a book that I would write about a musician would be about a girl, not even like gay boys. (laughs) I don't know why it's just like what my interest was. But the only strong like personal flack I've ever gotten from the books is about this issue. And I have to say like, it was kind of rough, even though I haven't gotten that much of it. When I do, it's it does like hit really close to the core because um, the only kind of like bad Twitter dragging I ever got <laughs> was right before K-Pop Confidential came out, like a month before. And these two white <laughs> K-pop journalists with a lot of followers. Yikes. Uh, like kind of isolated three phrases from my whole book. Mm. It was all, all from one chapter that was posted online as an exclusive. And one of them just isolated three phrases that were completely out of context. I'll just tell you exactly what they were. They were the word luscious. and Just the word? Yes, just the word <laughs> luscious. The phrase milky white. And then the word panties. And that was all from one chapter. And they made it sound like, oh, this male author like is leering at girl characters. And this is why male authors can never write from female points of view. But I have to say, Luscious was about Helena's hair. And this was the scene where Candace first meets the girls. I frequently think that word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> can it I wasn't, say? Yeah. And then Milky White was, I used that two times in a row on purpose because when Candace walks in, she notices that some of the girls have that very white skin and Bina didn't. And it was not to say one is better than the other or one is attractive and one is not. It was just to kind of point out that like there is an ideal within this world. And And colorism, um, right? Yes, colorism. And she immediately notices it. And then the word panties, like for me, the word panties is not... um, uh, because Koreans say penty. Yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> my grandmother says penty. Like, even when I look just, at my... It just means underwear, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. And like in the UK, we call underwear pants. Exactly. So. Right. Exactly. So when I look at my own underwear, I think penty. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but like the implication was like that I was like disgusting and also the implication was that I was like some straight guy who was like leering I was gonna say clearly they know nothing about you (laughs) just from that one exactly but like because of how Twitter works sometimes they didn't care that like you know this was like very hurtful um these were all subtweets too so like you know Mm. and then um a different k-pop journalist with even more followers retweeted that and said books like this should not get published and then a bunch of people piled on and like you know, put gifts of like books being burned and everything. And I really wanted to fire back, but I didn't because I was so scared. Like when when you put something out and like you get like a really negative reaction before it's even out to the public. Mm -hmm. And then so many people can form an initial impression. It's so scary. So I was just like, oh my gosh, my book, once it comes out, everyone's going to think this because this was the biggest reaction I've ever gotten to my book at this point. Mm -hmm. I was like, once it comes out, people are going to hate it. And I'm going to be like labeled bad representation Mm. of young women. So I was terrified. And but then it turned out that once the book came out, no one thought that. (laughs) Um, And I do get the occasional one star review from someone who hasn't read the book just based on the fact that I'm uh, cisgender male. But the, the thing is, the people who say this kind of thing, they kind of 
make it out that they're fighting for good representation. But at the same time, I feel like they're in action. They are saying that there is always a difference between male and female and really cutting gender mm-hmm. lines in a kind of way that I feel like they probably wouldn't want to do. <laughs> it's also kind of virtue signaling, isn't it? Yes. Let yeah. me make sure that I have the right stance on this and just get on this as quickly as possible. I also find it really interesting that it's often white women who are yes. standing up for women of color, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Right. Against men of color. Right. Or, yeah, and it's it's just this, to me, it reproduces this really uncomfortable white feminist colonial mm. mindset of like saving those poor uh, mm. Asian women from those terrible Asian men. It's just like, you know, we can clean our own house. Yeah. It's OK. Like, exactly. y'all can stay out of this. Yeah. 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 Like, you just want to say sit down. <laughs> exactly. And like it was right before my book came out. And that's a very scary time. So. I actually just was like, okay, you know what? Maybe this whole book is a wash and like I should like maybe just try to let it disappear. So for that last month before my book came out, I like said no to interviews. I like just like kind of hid because I was so scared that this is what everyone was going to think. But then turns out no one did. And then the funniest thing is one of those journalists wrote a review of my book for a very big national magazine and it was glowing she didn't even remember that she did this so it really wow. made, it really drove home that even though i knew in my heart that i would did not do anything wrong and the criticism was not fair i still felt ashamed so i realized that like these people didn't actually care about representation they just wanted quick likes because one mm. of the quickest ways to get likes is to virtual signal and to be negative so Mm -hmm. especially um, the way that twitter is set up like it's designed to kind of spotlight controversial and extreme opinions which has led to so many problems Mm -hmm. right Um, you know when i was reading book two like not to jump ahead too far but like one of the questions i was going to ask you is like were you inspired (laughs) by some kind of personal experience or you know like with this white k-pop youtuber that is creating so many problems so Exactly. Yes, I did it this exact thing. But obviously, on a much larger scale, um, Candace deals with this kind of thing. Because I think whenever you're doing anything that is making a big swing in public, um, and that includes writing a book or doing almost anything that is distinctive or is an imaginative work, you are going to get some blowback. And like a lot of it is going to be kind of unfair. And like part of it is just to learn to deal with it. And also maybe be bold enough to kind of fire back, which I was not, but Mm -hmm. I really did put that into the book because like Candace gets like really plagued by negativity in ways that I've seen K-pop stars in real life get plagued. And often it's for no good reason. It's usually centered on female stars, Mm -hmm. um, giving someone a side eye on a reality show or on a variety show. And it's just like, don't human beings do that all the time? But then you see people on Twitter just like really coming for them for no reason. And you're just like, do you really think that if you were filmed 24-7, you would never give your bandmates side eye? You know? Or like, <laughs> but or like also like you would that. trust the editor to cut it out, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I guess sometimes things get slipped through. Or if you get filmed one time, like going through the motions in a warm-up, you get called lazy. And I'm like, would you really never, ever once be lazy (laughs) if you had this kind of schedule? (laughs) I mean, these fans would never even be able to 
do that in the first place. Like, what? like I would never be able to do that. I'm, I can't even exercise twice a week. Yeah, like, I couldn't do that for five minutes. So. Yeah, no, I can't what, even stand up in high heels. So you know, exactly. And what worries me when I see this happening to people, um, whether they're young writers or young athletes or young K-pop stars, is like I do kind of wonder if young people who see that happen on Twitter all the time, if that will actually make them afraid to do things that are risky creatively or put themselves out there because it really just seems so thankless sometimes if you just see what people say. And it's just like, oh, if I make one statement. And the thing is, the more of a voice you have or the more distinctive you are, the more people are going to have a problem with it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Mm. Um, so that's what I wanted to explore in the second book was just to show how tough it is to not just be kind of the person in the spotlight, but to do something extra. Um, so Candace is not just part of a, a huge hyped girl group. She's also trying to advocate for something. And that will obviously put a big target on your back because people, if you listen to the crowds, um, first of all, they basically just want you to do nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. or or they just want you to do like the very generic thing. But that will actually not lead to success. Mm-hmm. Can I make a confession? Yes, of course. So like over the years as a reader, quite mm-hmm. unconsciously, but I realized this like some years into this being the case, I realized that I had stopped reading male writers. Mm-hmm. And so let's, uh, at least 10 years, I haven't read a book by a man. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the first book in minimum 10 years that I've read by a man. <laughs> and it was, I have no criticisms. It was oh, so good. Thank you. And thank you. I didn't for a moment think, oh, a man wrote this. <laughs> and I grew up reading a lot of fantasy. And uh, YA fantasy is really big right now, but they're usually female writers because they can't yeah. make it in like, you know, classic fantasy because that's dominated by men in a very mm. specific type of writing. Mostly white men. Yes, yeah, exactly. For sure. So having turned away from that, it just at, at a point, it kind of feels harder to pick up a book written by a man than to just sort of stay in that zone. No, I completely <laughs> understand. So. I just wanted to say, great job. I did not feel it at all. Oh, thank you. But you know what? I I honestly feel the same way. Like, even with adult books, I am so much more inclined to read books by women. And like I was saying, like, I will get an occasional one-star review from someone who, like, hasn't read the book or has, like, one very specific bone to pick. Like, um, oh, this girl was so not believable. Like, the writer talked about, like, the fact that she sweats from her butt when she's nervous. And I'm that just is so li- relatable. It's extremely believable. I'm exactly. sorry to talk about sweat listeners, but like, let's uh, be right. real. Right. And like how yeah. you can't get deodorant in Korea is one of the things that they always tell to travelers exactly. to Korea, take deodorant because you can't buy it there. Take exactly. antiperspirant, you can't buy it there. So. Yeah. And they're like, girls would never sweat from their butt or talk about it. And I'm like, um, are you sure? Do you know any what? girls? Like, exactly. <laughs> I actually, I thought it was so genius that she um, had sanitary towels I know that was amazing I was like what an amazing tip this is like job interview tip right here and I I got that from you know real life and like actual people who talked about it and friends who talked about it in Korea and you know like I do kind of like want to challenge where we are on Twitter and kind of in YA literature just like I totally agree with being careful about representation 
but also like you know I have gotten like kind of knee-jerk flack for like just mentioning the fact that like she uses pads instead of tampons and I'm just like I'm whenever my female friends like talk about this kind of thing I'm very interested I'm like oh wow like you know that's not my experience but I'm very interested in this and like the fact that you have to think about this and you know when I hear about people from America going to Korea women you know, menstruating women, they're talking, they always talk about like, oh, you can't find a tampon there. That's really mm-hmm. weird. I've heard and that as well. Yeah. yeah. yeah so I'm just like, oh, that's really interesting. And I think that's like a very real thing. So I'm going to include that. And like, I don't know, even though I don't have that experience, I, I think like men- mentioning it should be okay. But um, I don't know. And I think generally, yeah. I, I'm acting like all readers have a problem with this, but literally like maybe 1% do, but it's just like kind of what I do. I just want to say one thing about like what you were talking about, Stefan, about this conversation that's happening in YA. And like, even though I'm not a big YA reader, I'm like, Mm. somehow I have fallen into YA book author Twitter, (laughs) probably because of Saya. It's fun. Um, Because it's full of women of color, Anissa. It's full of people like us. That's what it is, right? Those are the only women authors of color that I can find. YA is the only genre that welcomes all of us. Exactly. Everywhere else yeah. is so much yes. more heavily gatekept. Romance is getting better. Romance is getting it's it's working on itself a little bit. In yeah. some right. Areas. But that's yeah. because it had so many problems before. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm refraining from making comments about Yeah, that's yeah. Not, that's a whole other can of worms that we won't get into. But like what I was going to say is, you know, to your point about like this whole own voices thing, right? Like mm-hmm. so for a long time it was like own voices was really a way that women of color were using kind of pushed back against all these really terrible representations by white authors, you know, mm-hmm. really racist, you know, like the representations we grew up with in yeah. all the books that we read when we were growing up. And now there are some elements of like such a strict policing of own voices that it's getting mm-hmm. kind of counterproductive while also that sort of hashtag and that label is being co-opted by publication companies. Mm. Yes. I didn't say that right. Publishing companies. Like you have to be the right to own voice. Yeah, exactly. And yet at the same time, still white authors are somehow benefiting from this more. Exactly. (laughs) Somehow. I don't know how. (laughs) Exactly. And the thing is like, I do consider it own voices because it is Korean American and it is Korean. And like, for me, I don't know. Like, I do think that like gender at least in terms of voice, can be a construct because it's just like, do all women speak one way? Do all cis men speak one way? I don't think so. I actually love when I get a comment, and this is usually never said in a bad way, but like usually from friends who know me, they're just like, oh, Candace sounds like a 30-year-old gay man here. And I'm like, yes, she does. (laughs) 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 Because you know what? I think... A lot of people sometimes sound like 30-year-old gay men. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Like, I think, yeah, like, what you're saying, it really (laughs) makes me think about the fact that it's really about empathy, right? Yes, exactly. And and being able to put yourself into someone else's perspective, actually treating them like a human being, where, Mm -hmm. like, the problem with these white authors, apart from the fact that they had access to opportunities that other people didn't have, and, like, an unfair imbalance of power and resources, was the fact that when they did write characters of color... They did not write them trying to put themselves in their shoes and with empathy and treating them as full human beings. They were just writing them as like racist tropes and stereotypes. And so like even now you have these like white authors who are like, so now I can only write white people. I can I can only write men like, no, that's not 
That's not what we're saying. It's like just right. treat people like human beings. Exactly. And you see, you totally nailed, because so this is the argument, right, that they use about why they can't write people of color, like, am I not allowed to? Should imagination be limited? But the crux of it isn't imagination. It is exactly, as you say, it's empathy. That is yeah. deep, Anissa. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I've thinking about this for a long time. <laughs> no, that is so well said by both of you. And yeah, and I think also, like, um, Part of empathy is interest and curiosity mm -hmm. because like sometimes you can tell when sure. like someone wasn't fully that interested <laughs> in getting really putting themselves into their shoes. And like, you know, I'm very deeply interested in women's stories, more so than men's stories, even more so than most gay men's stories. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just where my interest lies. Mm. And that care and that love and interest shows in your writing. Oh, thank sure. you so much. And, you know, I'm actually super surprised that people are saying that Candace is not a realistic character because, I mean, she is. I mean, the way I've read her, like, she's not a character who's always likable and yeah. she's not always right and she's not always good. And what's more realistic than that? Right. So and honestly, <laughs> um, no, I feel bad because I feel like I'm kind of like lingering on like, you know, maybe like the one in hundred, you know, responses I get. <laughs> um but like, you know, as anyone who puts anything out, including a podcast or anything creative, like people's a criticism mm -hmm. sticks in your yeah. mind for a lot longer. But in terms of like making Candace fully rounded, I definitely wanted to show her being, you know, impatient, see her being a little bit self-absorbed, just because mm -hmm. I think that people in a very difficult situation do act unpleasant a lot of the time. And, you know, when you see someone in the public eye acting bratty or something, it's easy to assume like, oh, they, they have everything in the world, yet they're still being like bratty or they, they have an attitude during a fan sign. And I'm like, just imagine if you were you had their schedule. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And she's just a kid. Yeah, yeah just exactly. a kid. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I actually have two very Candace specific questions, yes. which I'm going to ask them both together because you may have like a, a single answer for them, although they are slightly different. So the first thing I want to know is, I, I mean, K-pop Confidential, K-pop Revolution, both of them are full of really interesting, complex and, you know, rounded out characters. Why did Candace have to be the center for the novel, you know, the center, instead of, for example, say Helena or one of the Never Idol members? And they would have made, I'm sure they would have made equally interesting points of view. And Secondly, how do you write the flaws into your character? Like, how do you walk the line between complicated and unlikable? Yes, exactly. Well, that's really an amazing question. And I love that you asked them together because I do think that they kind of feed into each other. So I decided to write from Candace because I did kind of want her to be kind of an every person. I also don't recommend always writing for a specific audience you have in your head. But one thing I did think about was I wanted... Candace to be relatable both to Korean people and to, you know, any audience. Um, so I wanted to make her very Korean American. So she is a genuine outsider in the K-pop world, um, which behind the scenes is very Korean. So that's what I wanted to do there. And in terms of having her flawed, I really wanted to, someone who um, you could root for. But like, I also think that Maybe this is also just me writing myself into her a little bit, but like I'm a very emotional person <laughs> and I'm like more ruled by emotions than other things. And I wanted her to be the same way because I think that is kind of the um, 
creative disposition and she is a creative person. Um, and also I once got a tip from a creative writing teacher specifically about like, what's the difference between YA and adult literature. And I actually don't think there's any one thing because I don't even think that making a teenager your main character makes something YA even. Mm. Like it's really hard to even pinpoint it. And like, I don't think there is a real answer, but like, I think part of what, part of what she said actually was checking in with your character's emotions constantly. And I do think that adults readers do talk about emotions, but I think like YA novels are especially just like really close to emotions, like how they feel at every moment. And Candace feels like elated, disgusted, and like she has like crazy mood swings, not because she's unusual, but but because I think that's just how a lot of people are, including myself. Um, so there are scenes where she's just like kind of bratty, then she's being kind of noble, and then she's back to being bratty again. <laughs> and I think that's um how a lot of people are. And I just wanted to really show that. But a lot of that was actually technique because I never got that advice out of my head. Like always be checking in on your character's emotions. And I do that a little bit with the other characters. And like, I once got a tip from a writing teacher once where, um, do you want to make a character likable? Talk about their flaws. And I think that's so true. When I was working on my other adult novel um, that I had been working on forever and I'm going to return to very soon, I once like... Are we allowed to know about this? We knew that. Sorry, (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. Um, No, it's a very, very autobiographical book with a teenage narrator, but I do consider it an adult who is a gay Korean boy growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, (laughs) which was me. Um, But I once like wrote a description about like how he is really bad with directions and how most teenagers really want wanted to get their driver's license, but um, he actually never did because he always liked someone else like knowing where to go. And yeah, like my writing professor really highlighted that. And he's just like, yes, like that makes me like him because like you showed a flaw. So I think at the core of like what ma- makes people likable is actually flaws in a way. That's really interesting. Oh, actually, I mean, I have to confess here that I was a nerd and before this interview, I went and listened to several of your previous interviews. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's why I'm nodding along to some of the story you're saying, because I know the punchline is coming. Yeah. <laughs> but, but one of the things you talked about in, in a previous interview, in actually several of them, is Korean's sense of passion and emotionality and mm-hmm. this desire to tell their stories to a wider world. Yeah. And Like, this is one of the things, especially as a YA reader who loves K-drama, it was immediately apparent to me that K-drama and YA are like the fruit of the same tree. And the fruit is emotion-centered storytelling. Yes. And that's why you find a massive crossover between, you know, K-drama fans and YA readers, because they're coming for that same thing. So you've touched on it a little bit. Could you expound a little bit on, you know, how would you compare the storytelling between a YA novel and a K-drama? And like for you specifically, how much does your Koreanness, you know, that passion mm-hmm. and that emotionality, if that's even separable. No, I know exactly what you mean. How much of that informs your storytelling? Yeah, so it's funny because I think a lot in America, like classically, Asians, including Korean Americans, have a reputation for being kind of mild-mannered. But especially with Koreans, that is just so not true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I also understand why people might think that because I think we're good at presenting that face. And that's what Candace is very good at at the very beginning of K-pop Confidential and also throughout like kind of the whole books like she knows how to 
um, present well up until kind of her emotions take over. (laughs) And I do think that is kind of inherent in Korean identity in a lot of ways. And I think it is kind of loaded into the history of Korea. You know, Koreans have always, almost always been kind of vassals to other empires or like kind of dominated by other empires surrounding it. But Koreans have always been kind of fiercely proud of their own identity, even if they were having to speak a different language, you know, even if they were having to speak Japanese, like really held fast to their own identity um, over all these centuries. And I also think that that emotionality and that heat comes a lot from having to repress what you want to say for a long time. And then maybe all of it coming out at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've realized I've had that in just like my character since I was a kid. And that's why I like writing, because I always thought people saw me as like especially mild mannered or especially unopinionated or quiet when I was growing up. But like a lot of people would be very surprised by like, oh, my gosh, you wrote something that was very funny or you wrote something that was very intense. Mm-hmm. And um, it was always a result of like, having had those feelings all along, but then like kind of letting them out all at once. And I think that's actually a very Korean thing. And, you know, I think you guys are probably very familiar with these concepts as people who watch a lot of K-dramas, but like there is that sense of, everyone talks about Korean jung, which is the Korean sense of love. But then there's also the flip side of it, that's han, which is the Korean sense of like kind of revenge or this kind of feeling of being wronged. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like scary or like, you know, violent, but actually Koreans don't really think of that as a bad thing. Um, They think of it as central to like love as jung, you know? And I think there is this like sense of like, oh, like being repressed by others and then really wanting to assert your true self. And I think that's the moment that a lot of Korean people are having now, both Korean Americans and Korean Korean people. Like we kind of have the stage for once and like it's all kind of coming out in like really amazing ways. So um, that I did kind of want to put into Candace and also like some of the other characters too, even in light kind of breezy ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you say, having sort of that expert way of knowing like how to present yourself in which situation, what's appropriate, like as you said, that is a Korean thing, but also like I'm sure there's also an element of racism, right? Of like being seen as mild mannered because right. you're an Asian American, just be like people just don't see you as dominant or right smart in certain ways yeah yeah or like creative (laughs) or and so it's also their expectations their unfair and racist expectations of you being turned on their heads right yeah yeah and like it's so not unique to korean culture i mean i'm like i'm positive both of you have felt the same way you know um where you've grown up as well but like i think specifically when it comes to storytelling that is something that I think makes Koreans like kind of distinct from a lot of the cultures that are around them in that like Mm -hmm. they really want to share at this point because I don't think Koreans have had that much of an opportunity to share until very recently. So that's why K-pop is so popular because it's good and like catchy and like beautiful and but it's because it's done so passionately and because Korea has actively wanted to share this for a very long time and it finally just seems like a big global audience is paying attention. Yeah, for sure. I um, actually, so I mentioned before, like I went to Duke, I actually went for my graduate studies Mm -hmm. um, and my master's thesis was about, uh, I was comparing popular media from India and South Korea in this sort of like post-partition nationalism and like how it shows up in popular media. 
So one of my uh, professors invited me back a couple months ago to talk to her class where they were talking about like Asian storytelling, which like so jealous of, I wish I could have taken that as an undergrad. It sounds amazing. <laughs> amazing. Um, but she invited me to come talk about rom-coms and like the marriage plot, the Asian marriage yeah. plot. Um, and one of the things I was telling the class was that like Korean dramas are amazing and they're unique and special. But also one of the things that has made them so popular is that these Korean entertainment companies were not as aggressive as, say, for example, Japan, which also makes pretty amazing dramas. But Japan was really like very hardcore on shutting down like, you know, illegal downloads and sort of non non, yeah. you know, mm. official streaming. And but when yeah. Korean dramas like companies noticed that there was a huge like growing international fandom, they kind of let a lot of things go. Mm, they took wow. quite a benign attitude to it. Yes, yeah. and they kind of worked on sort of converting those people into like legitimate consumers that they could earn money from, which was so mm -hmm. smart because most of those people were like, I absolutely love this. Take my money. Like if I can buy wow. it, yes. why would I, you know, yeah. download it? You know, and like because that was just the only way we could get it back like 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you're so right about that, like that openness and that willingness to share and to like bring people in. Yeah. And um, that's something that I wanted to, this was like one of the most difficult part of writing the books is that I really wanted to show like reverence for Korean entertainment while also just showing how difficult it is to be part of it because I didn't want to single out K-pop or Korean entertainment because I think every kind of entertainment industry or every kind of media industry has all sorts of problems especially as they pertain to young people and their dreams and commodifying them. But I also just wanted to show that, you know, maybe some of the strict rules, um, a lot of them, which are not okay, but like some, you know, some of the high expectations are because K-pop is so important to Korea. And it's not just entertainment. It is part of, you know, spreading Korean identity around the world. Um, so the individuals are not really just representing themselves. Like America has such like a individualistic ideology. So like that actually does show up in the music or musicians. Like usually music acts are about their own selves or like kind of making themselves look cool. Whereas I think a lot of K-pop idols, even if they are very distinctive musicians with their own voices, do feel an obligation to the country and also to the people and to representing correctly. So um, Candace does come in kind of as an outsider, outsider, a little bit arrogant about like, oh, this is all so wrong. Like this would never happen in America. And I do think that she's right about a lot of that. But also, I don't think she fully appreciates why they mm. do things the way they do. Can I ask you a slightly personal question on that? Note? Yes, of course. Um, because I read that and I related to that quite heavily. And like, I'm Bengali um, mm -hmm. and I, I was born in England and I grew up here. So that sense of like feeling like your Englishness was superior to your mm -hmm. sort of uh, savage and uncivilized Bengaliness. Um, uh, right, I mean, right, I right. think of that with shame now, but like, yes. did you have experiences like that where you sort of rejected your Asianness? and sort of leaned more heavily on the Americanness. One thousand percent. And um, this is what like this other book is more about explicitly. But um, yeah, and I also gave that to Candace at first. Like she actually is embarrassed to say that she listens to K-pop at first, even though she likes it <laughs> and all of her friends like it. But she's just like, oh, I don't want to be the actual Korean girl who likes it. And it's so powerful that kind of drive to 
shame yourself or see white supremacy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to be completely honest. I still struggle with that as an adult and knowing better. And I have actually like followed other people into being more proud of my Korean identity. You know, Um, I've actually seen K-pop idols and being so cool and being so like inventive Um, because like a lot of times growing up, like at least Korean Americans, I can't really speak personally to like, you know, other types of experiences, but Korean Americans and Asian Americans, like a lot of the negative stereotypes are around like us being not cool, not being charismatic, not being, um, funny, not having like fully formed personalities, like maybe even being more robotic. And I think the great thing about arts and performance is showing that you're not necessarily always well-behaved. You are cool. You are extra. You're flawed, i.e. all that's to say fully human. So, you know, like people seem to think that Korean Americans have it easy as the model minority. But when you're when you're seen as a model minority, what they're saying is you're not fully human, you know, or you don't have fully the same textures as everyone else. And I think that's why seeing Korean or Asian representation in media, especially, is so is like just as important or if not more important than seeing Asian people in like law or medicine or like politics because like actually no politics is still really important and underrepresented but but like you know like yeah this politics is, like, is still scandalous like our parents don't actually want us to go to, yeah. into politics <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so like yeah like um it is like maybe like one of the more important aspects of fighting anti-asian representation is entertainment yeah oh i i can really relate to that i mean my experience has also been complicated. Like, A, I have those, like, sort of Asian American model minority myths. Like, my family is originally from Pakistan. So I did grow up with all those, you know, like, expected to be good at math. I'm not a good... I'm, I've always been more of a creative yeah. person and, like, a <laughs> language person. So I didn't fit into all of those, like, math and science. Although I did mm-hmm. do science Olympiad in high school. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was yes. like my parents did not really subscribe to that whole be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer. But like I definitely grew yeah. up in a community of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I made it as far as a science undergrad degree. And then I was like, no, this isn't. Yeah. Thing. Well, yeah. But, but also like that was complicated by, you know, 9-11 happening when I was in high school, like both mm. for both of us. Yeah. Um, and then there was this whole new wave of things that had already been there, but they became sort of extremely institutionalized through the state and through media. Yes. Um, and like Saya have, and I have a whole other podcast about this that um, you can check out if you, if you'd like, but, oh yeah. but basically like that also, you know, it put on all these different expectations on us that we then had to like grow up yeah. fighting against. So yeah, it's, it's a lot, but I think like, it's nice to talk to other people who are also trying to do the same thing mm-hmm. and, and just kind of like find solidarity. You know, the interesting thing is, like, especially for us as children of immigrants, is that you often have a hard time connecting those experiences, like being able to be understood in those experiences from your peers who didn't have that same experience, whether it's in this country or in the country of your extraction. So often you actually find you have a, like, it's much more easier to connect um, and understand each other, even if we like originate from different countries, that 
immigrant experience, like we have more in common with each other than we do with people back home or, you know, our peers who grew up here in, in, our, in the countries that we live in now and didn't have any experience of that. I always found yeah. that interesting. I d there's not a question <laughs> there. <laughs> no, but like that, that is so interesting too. And like the thing is the way I grew up and I think you guys can probably relate to this too, but well, maybe, maybe not. But um, I think among... Asian Americans, I think for whatever reason, Korean Americans, at least in the 80s and 90s, especially, were like specific, like especially motivated to assimilate, you know? Mm -hmm. So I grew up like my parents didn't even try to like teach us that much mm -hmm. Korean or anything. They were just like priority is fitting into the mainstream at school and like my brother and I, we went to a very white private school um, in Atlanta. So did I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a world like, that was. <laughs> exactly. And like you would think that like Atlanta, Georgia would be like a really tough in a very white private school would be kind of tough. And it, it was in some ways, but like we like so fully assimilated that like mm -hmm. my brother has like a southern accent and like still lives in atlanta and just like completely is of that world now yeah whereas like i think me probably being gay was like maybe kept me from fully like jumping in but yeah like i grew up with mostly white friends and even at undergrad at duke like i kind of didn't really hang out with like the korean mm. groups um because i just felt like i actually had more in common with like white wow. kids yeah. <laughs> or actually not even white kids but like non-korean kids you know yeah. um, so my, when you say you didn't hang out with the korean groups do you mean like the international students or do you mean like korean americans or even like um you know there were i did have korean american friends and like um there were you know other korean americans like me of course but like there was like a definite big group of like korean americans who only mm. hung out with each other and like I think I naturally like didn't really become part of that because I just didn't relate. And also I think there was like that kind of thing in me that Candace has at the beginning. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do the expected thing, mm -hmm. but it's only more recently that I've like fully embraced and like kind of highlight all the things that I find Korean in me that I didn't yeah. really know was like mm -hmm. felt Korean. It's also like, you know? you know, people frame the immigrant experience as being very the same for everybody, but it's not right. Like mm -hmm. there are yeah. of course things that we can all relate to each other about, but at the same time, like even among people who are from the same ethnicity, if you grow up in a big city in Southern California, surrounded by other people of color as an immigrant, that's very different from like growing up in the Midwest as like the only family of, you know, of your ethnicity in the whole town. And like, that's not going to be the same experience. And so then like that shapes how you think about yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And like, I do kind of wonder how much of this is like the moment where like, you know, being a person of color is there's so much like difficulty there um, now, but there's also more of like a celebration of it um, sometimes. And that's also like as much as I've like talked about the downsides of social media, that is like one of the better parts of social media is like depending on like what mm. circles that you follow, like it is awesome that people are making an effort to specifically lift up marginalized voices so like it is that maybe it is the timing but it's also maybe just getting older um just realizing like oh I want to embrace the parts that are authentically mm -hmm. myself um and I don't really feel the need to try to fit in as much anymore because mm -hmm. like even I don't know getting kind of personal to like my life right now but like 
you know, with like dating in the gay world, just seeing how like gay identity intersects with racial identity, really thinking about that more critically has been so eye-opening because like um, when I first, you know, graduated college and like started living as an adult, I'd be like, I almost took it for granted the fact that like Asian men are not popular in the dating mm-hmm. world, <laughs> both in the straight and gay worlds, you know, or the audience is limited to people who specifically like you or don't. Um, you're never seen as an individual, but I almost accepted that too easily. I was just kind of like, oh, of course, that's how it is. Like, I almost knew even before stepping into that experience myself, that's how it was going to be. And it was, and it is. And, but now I have no patience for it. I call it out or I just like shut it down when I just feel feel that happening. And it does make finding someone harder, but it's also just authentic. And I'm like, you know, I will be by myself instead of compromising that or just playing along like I might have done before. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it is the moment. I think it's one of the beautiful things about like being in your 30s. You're yeah. just like so much less willing to pe- put up with people's like nonsense. You're like, you know what? I'm good. Right. I don't need you in my life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. I'd Can I just like sort of rewind for a moment? Because like everything you were saying about going from this white private school into the world where it's very different. Because what I found when um, when I was at school, which was it was an all girls private school dominated by white people. I never thought about being brown Uh there. And like it's a credit to the experience in some ways that it was such a, a welcoming place in that I was never conscious of my color there until I left. Literally, I started university and I hit a wall where I suddenly had to pay attention to the fact that though I saw myself as like a a white girl, I was not in fact a white girl. Yes, (laughs) that is so true. (laughs) And because you gravitate, because you've been like, for me, I had been with the same group of people for seven years. Yeah. You you know, I spoke like them. I thought like them. I was educated like them. And like it's been like 20, literally 20 years since I've left school. So um, like I'm, I'm re- regaining my old accent. But if you had caught me straight out of school, I sounded like um, a cut glass English accent, basically. Imagine the <laughs> poshest private school girl you can imagine. That's exactly how yeah. it sounded. Because I assimilate accents really easily. Although I hadn't come from that sort of background because I had spent all of those years in that environment, I had become like them. But yeah, then at university, it hits you. Um, But it didn't fully get me until... So we had a few turning points. Of course, 9-11 was one of them. I finished my undergrad in 2005, which was when we had the London bombings, and I was going to university in that exact place. So my brown awakening had begun, like sort of in 2005. And then in 2014, we had a very direct encounter with like counterterrorism, which that ripped the veil from my eyes forever. So I would say like that was the point where I was like, you know what? That illusion of my inner whiteness was that just it was obliterated from those encounters. And I mean, we're going to talk about this a bit more later, but I just reread your uh, Twitter thread about the assault that you experienced. Mm. Yeah, that was a big awakening to me too. Yeah. Yeah. No, in 2018, um, in New York, where I lived until very recently, um, yeah, I just got randomly attacked and it was racially motivated um, on the streets in a very busy area, one block away from my apartment. And it was an awakening I, because, I don't know, I think I did kind of walk around 
with some privilege, but then also some illusions of privilege. Mm, yes, <laughs> so, that's um, exactly it. Yeah, because like, I don't know, I just kind of... all uh, you Because know, for, you think your inner self will protect you from the outer world, right? Oh, that that is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd already been living in New York for so long before then, and I walked alone in very like you know, unadvisable situations, <laughs> like late at night, um, sometimes inebriated, um, far from home. But like, I didn't really think like anything would ever happen to me. And I do think that there's some male privilege there for sure. But then, yeah, just getting kind of beaten up. I always heard that kind of thing happening to like, you know, people who work out in the world a lot more than I do, because I've always had an office job. But like, you know, like um, Asian delivery drivers or, you know, and I was just kind of thought, this is so awful, but like, in a way, I thought of there was like a separation between me and them, you know, I was like, they are more other than I am. But then in that moment, it just made it clear that like, oh, I am in the eyes of the world, I really am no different. And maybe inwardly, I am not as different as I think from certain stereotypes people might have of Asian people being easy targets or um, being people that like, you know, strangers won't help as much, you know? And I was just like, wow, I didn't think that was me. I thought like the, and the thing is like, it wasn't even being attacked. That was like the worst part. It was like that nobody stepped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something that I wanted to follow up that thread with, but literally just a few days after I posted that thread, there was an incident in New York where an Asian woman was kicked almost to death right outside of a um, condo lobby on 43rd Street. And there was video of the people who worked in the lobby of the condo closing the door and not helping. Oh my God. And the thing is, I'd already kind of gone through a lot with like posting that thread. And like, even though it was very well received, it was still like a big emotional like um, toll. But then I wanted to follow that up and be like, that was actually the same lobby that where my attack happened. I could not believe it. It was like the universe was like really like saying something, but I weirdly, not weirdly, but I, I kind of thought that like, if I shared that, I would be kind of in the news about that story and associated with that story all over again. And I was like, at that moment, I just felt very kind of like heightened anxiety and I didn't Mm want to, share that element and like put myself into the story again, even though I weirdly kind of felt like I should, because I was just like, what are the odds of, I wrote in that thread, like running into the nearest condo building and not getting help. And that was the exact same place with actual footage of that happening to someone else three years later. Um, It was so strange, Um, but I decided not to do it, but it was a big awakening as like you guys have also Mm. had. Yeah. It's one of those things you realize, isn't it? As, and because, you know, we're constantly having racist encounters. And mm-hmm. the worst part is exactly as you say, it's not the encounter itself. It's the fact that everyone is silently looking on and any one of them could like do something, say something, help. And you're just like, that is what's mind blowing to me. Because it's always your, like, isn't it your natural instinct when you see someone in trouble that, like, even without thinking, a helping response comes out? Like, how have you grown up? What kind of world do you live in? What kind of conditioning have you received that allows you to not see these things it just yeah. blows my mind and like yeah no, i was go gonna ahead. say it is conditioning because we've been conditioned by the society that is like always 
whoever is marked as other, like nobody wants to be tainted by that because the consequences that people receive for speaking out against injustice, it affects everyone around them. So now we've right. kind of been conditioned to be like, well, like I have to distance myself from that as much as I can because I don't want to be drawn into this. It's, it is always just like kind of a shocker when like, even though it shouldn't be <laughs> when something like this happens. And like, uh, when I initially kind of shared with some friends, like right when it happened, like Twitter thread was like years after it happened, but right when it happened, I was surprised by a lot of responses I got even from close friends. Um, they were more interested in like the politics of the situation. Like they were very curious about like the identity of my attackers. And I was like, that's kind of like mm. not the point. Not even in explicitly racist ways, but in ways that were just like, they were more interested in whether they should be sympathetic to my t attackers. And what? I was just like, okay. can, we, can we just, can I, I was just like, can we just like not talk about like the politics of the situation and just be, talk about the human parts of the situation? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, know. there's this great essay on YouTube, if, if um, anyone who is a one-time Harry Potter fan or who is interested in critique of Harry Potter, it's a two-hour mm -hmm. video essay by um, a guy who's audacious enough to go by a single name, Sean, <laughs> with <laughs> AU, and his video is simply entitled Harry Potter. Um, he does this really interesting analysis, which um, I'm sure, like, you smart people have come across before, but I haven't, <laughs> which is, he talks about how in, like, the world of Harry Potter and the J.K. Rowling approach to correcting injustice is to correct an individual event. Like if mm. one person, for example, in Harry Potter, like saving creature or like saving Dobby, like it's enough for like in that worldview, saving the individual is the act of heroism. Whereas the solutions that we need are systemic like, it's not enough to save the individual. You have to change the system so that this doesn't right. continue to happen to individuals. Um, and that that's basically it, is, like, the response of your peers is... Is it, that's a very, and it's a very white response. Yeah, I mean, basically. that's not just limited to yeah. Harry Potter. That's basically white liberal uh, mm. activism right. in a nutshell, just, right? Yeah. Giving my yeah, citation. Yeah. And it's not only yeah. white people who subscribe to that, you know, sort of white liberal idea of activism. Also true, also true. Right. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm sure that you have both experienced this too, but like there is like this white liberalism that thinks that certain types of BIPOC experiences are more important than others. <laughs> and like, I think a lot of times, like even my close friends who are, who are white liberals, like really discount like struggles by people of East Asian descent, um, which is the only one I can speak towards. But um, because like, a lot of the stereotypes that we fight are not about us being dangerous. They think it's not as important, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, um, but we're also completely ignored and completely, and the assumptions that are made about us are very damaging. Like there are, you know, in, in non-creative spaces, for instance, like the legal world, there are so many very qualified Asian American lawyers who are not given like the, prime work they're put in the back to the grunt work whereas people where people with less skills are just seen as more charismatic or more mm. personable and they get like the good positions and the good assignments and it's this, like vague squishy way of evaluating people so you can't <laughs> even call it out and be like hey that's actually not true because yeah. it's just like based on someone's feelings mm. but they're like racist feelings right. 
<laughs> yeah, and Anissa, I'm sure you can relate to this as well. But like when I was a journalist, when I was working at Entertainment Weekly, like we would have these like morning meetings and I loved working at Entertainment Weekly and I really loved like basically every individual there. But there was a dynamic where um, in the morning meetings, I would be pretty quiet because like, I don't know, I think it was like sort of conditioning to be like, and I was younger than most people there. So um, there was conditioning to just be quiet and like to do the good work. And even but other, you know, young staffers who are white were just like very comfortable speaking mm-hmm. up in that space. And they're allowed and, to, I think, also. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, but the thing is, I'm just like a good small group person. I just don't thrive in a, the morning meetings where every staffer is there. And it's interesting because um, journalism is so personality based in so many ways. Um, so there would be assumptions that like, oh, Stefan shouldn't talk to like this really funny, outspoken celebrity because like he's going to want to talk to like a quiet bookish person, you know? And I'm like, if you only knew how I actually am, like no one ever said that explicitly. I just Mm, felt that over years and years of things happening over and over again. And the thing is like a lot of those people, my peers, my age who like hung out with me in small groups after work would just be like, you don't know Stefan. Stefan is like very funny and like he will fire back at people when I'm, but like, I just like, for whatever reason, found it a lot harder to do that. And so like, I would get passed up for like, you know, really prime like interviews, even though I'm like, I know I would have a great connection with that person. Um, But there were all sorts of impressions that like, oh, like he's not going to be personable or like, he's not going to charm that person when I knew that I could, Mm. you know? And like, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but I think it is when that's always the assumption. Like as an Asian person, I've had the experience of like walking into a party where I don't know people that well. And like, there's an instant, just visible, palpable, sudden lack of interest. And I do know just from a lifetime of having lived this, that it's because I'm an Asian guy specifically. They think, I'm not going to have a personality. I'm not going to have like a distinct sense of humor. But then like I have to prove them wrong in the course of that. Whereas the person I walk in with usually (laughs) it's just like, oh, they get the benefit of the doubt in that way. Mm. And like that's not and this is consequential because like I think a lot of Asian men specifically are alone and they don't want to be. And it's because like there are so many assumptions about our desirability not just physically, but like, you know, in terms of our personalities, our souls, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it makes people automatically uninterested. And that's pure bias. I find you know? that so baffling. Like, I, I can't <laughs> imagine, like, I'm just completely baffled that I've lost all my words. No, but you know what? I do think it's palpably getting better for sure. And I do think it is because of representation and entertainment. Like, even as, even as recently as like, 2014. I think of that as so recent, but it's really not. But like, I'm with you though. It doesn't feel like that long ago. And you're like, oh, it's eight years. Oh God. Right. Even as recently as 2014, it was so rare to see like an Asian guy as like an object of like desire. And it still is, but like it, it's not unheard of. But I remember for some reason on, I don't know, I was really, really obsessed with the show Broad City at the time. And I still love that show. But I do remember like, there was like a subplot of like one of the girls being very, very turned on by this Asian guy, East Asian guy. And I was just like, whoa, I've never seen this. And then there was like a spate of that happening on like comedy shows, 
with like, you know, outspoken white women, we're suddenly just like, ooh, what's the new frontier? Oh, thinking of Asian guys is hot. And, you know, like, I was very appreciative of it. I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is happening. And then it's happened since then. But like, I remember just being completely, completely shocked and overwhelmed. And like, yeah. (laughs) Does it still feel a little objectifying though? Because I don't know. I mean, you don't want to be a fetish after all. You know what? I don't, I don't want to like speak for other Asian people, but like, I think like, even being fetishized in that way is like an improvement. And I think that there have been depictions of like Asian heartthrobs that are not fetishizing, even in white media, which I think have been really awesome. But like, you know, oh gosh, this is getting like way too deep. But like, I've definitely been fetishized in like ways I really didn't like in terms of like having people be interested in me because they only go for Asian Mm -hmm. guys in the gay world um, because it seems easier. That's kind of gross. They're the only ones who will give them the time of day. Mm. And there's usually a reason for that. (laughs) Um, And like, I've been told explicitly, I think one thing I am so grateful for, and I do think social media has done a really good job of this, is like to bring a lot of this stuff to light. Because to me, like, you know, I graduated college and moved to New York in 2008. Back then, it was so not unusual to, for people to say like very explicitly racist things to your face. <laughs> um, but just say like, oh yeah, like like w- when I was 22, I went on a date with like a guy who was like in his 50s because uh, honestly, a lot of Asian guys do that because that's kind of what's on offer. And he was just like, oh yeah, when I was younger, I never dated Asian guys. But I realized like after I turned 50, the, the hot white guys didn't look at me anymore, but Asian guys will still give me a chance. And I'm like... Oh, okay. <laughs> and like he thought nothing of saying that to my face. Um, and I, and the, the sad part is I was not surprised mm-hmm. by that at all. I just like kind of like, okay, that's par for the course. But now I'm just like, that's bullshit. I don't, I'm not going to deal with that. <laughs> Speaking of love and dating, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shall we, shall oh, we yeah, come sorry. back to the book? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that is not to say that everything that just passed isn't fascinating, but I do want to <laughs> squeeze this one question in because otherwise we'll depart so far from it, I won't be able to come back to it because I really want to know. So, in in K-pop confidential and in K-pop revolution, um, you do have love lines in the book, but mm-hmm. it it does still feel quite bold, like both in YA and in K drama, to write a book that doesn't center a grand and sweeping romance, which mm-hmm. I cannot lie, I'm always here for. Yeah, um, <laughs> and yet these stories still kind of take me by surprise. Like one for existing at all um, and two for just being completely riveting. Like how did you figure out what to center in Candace's story? Because I have to say, when I started the book, I started it in the morning and I, I finished it in the evening and then the next day I did the same thing. I, like I didn't put it down the entire time I was reading it and I may even have taken it to places I shouldn't have taken it to. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm going to cut that. <laughs> no. I also re- like read both of the books straight through because I was traveling to Turkey and I was just like, I was like, yeah, I have 10 hours. And I just like literally just said. <laughs> oh my God, that makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> And also, like, how much changed between your first draft of the first book and the final form? So, um, with kind of the love lines in the book, you know, maybe this is maybe a little bit too obvious, but, like, it was never the main focus of these books because um, the main focus was definitely um, Candace's own ambition. So, 
I even wanted like her love interest to just kind of reflect that. Youngbae is like more kind of grounded in her reality and like he kind of represents like the side of herself that would like kind of stay how she is because she already um, connects to him as she is now. Whereas Wonjae, the big pop star, is more aspirational and maybe like maybe who she would maybe want to become herself. So I wanted them to reflect her possible futures more than just like focusing on the romance. That's where that came from. That's why it was important for me in the first book to not have like a boy on the cover because I didn't want people to think that that was going to be the center of it because I just didn't want them to be mm. disappointed. But then the second cover looks like a love triangle. I know, and it kind of I kind isn't. of love it. I love the cover, but you're right, it's not. Yeah, it kind of isn't, but I actually like initially did have a lot more of 1J in the second book because I actually wanted once again for the boys to represent like different realities for her. I actually had her way more interested in Wonjae in the first draft because um, he kind of represents an imperviousness to criticism or like he's gotten to such a level where he's like untouchable. And because Candace goes through so much vulnerability and like she feels like she's so like vulnerable to people's um, slander and like the company that she is more attracted to someone who doesn't seem as human. She's like, it's so comfortable to be near someone with that aura of like, nothing can ever bring me down. So she actually sought one J out more. But um, my editor, like, and I don't think this was wrong. She was just like, okay, like, you know, there's so much going on in this book. Let's like try to tone that, that part down a little bit and play up other things. So that there, there was a difference between that in uh, drafts, but in general, um, the First draft of K-pop Confidential, like almost because there's no time, it is pretty much like the first draft with like a few edits. And the other big change was um, my editor suggested ending it where I did, which was seemed really risky to me because I didn't actually have a deal for the second book at that point. And the first book ends on kind yeah. of a cliffhanger and I was like, that could just be it. Um, but luckily I did get the second book deal. Um and I wouldn't even say that I did have a first draft of a second book because I really, really struggled when I was writing it. We were kind of deep into the pandemic at that point. And then also I was kind of just like dealing with like how scary it was to like put out the first book. <laughs> so like it kind of froze me. I was like, oh, if I write this, well, I don't know. Like even though I didn't get a, any real negative reactions to the first book, people like generally really loved it. And it was pretty uncontroversial other than that one incident. I was still just like so like tentative. I was just like, if I do this, will this certain audience not like it as much? And I was thinking too much of like the result. And I struggled so badly because if you create anything with that mindset, it will not turn out well. Um, so like my first draft of K-pop Revolution was so kind of robotic. It was like the things happened to Candace, but she wasn't making them happen or like her emotions weren't like tied to them. So then like when I really was so late on my deadline and I only had like literally a week left, I've admitted this to her now, but I lied to my editor and I was just like, oh, I'm almost done. Um, but then I actually started from the oh very gosh. beginning from scratch. Oh and then God. like I wrote as fast as I could. And then when that week was up, I was like, oh, I just need another week. And then I got another week and I was like, oh, I just need another week. But <laughs> the draft that like made How it into many the times? 
Yes, it was really just that three t- those three oh. times. But like, Whoa. this was after I had already gotten been so late. But she was like, mm-hmm. okay, if we don't get this in now, we have to push back your pub date, which I really didn't want to do. So um, I actually wrote the draft that made it into the book in like three weeks. And like from there, all she did was like cut some stuff. Um, but like, I struggled so long until I didn't. Mm-hmm. Like so that three weeks of writing was just like so magical because I was just like, out of desperation, freeing mm. myself. <laughs> and like, it really kind of reflected Candace's journey in the second book in a way. It's so corny to say that, but like, she does kind of learn how to like free herself. Um, and that's kind of the struggle of the second book. And like, I kind of like feel like I did too. And, but it was really hard. <laughs> that's insane. But amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta say. <laughs> To go back a little bit to you were talking about your experience um, at EW. So when did you kind of quit being a journalist and transition over to being an author full time? Or do you still do some journalism? Um, I actually I use the same skill sets as I did at EW. I do have a full time job still at um, Bustle, but I'm I'm not in editorial with them. I actually do branded content. Oh, okay. So um, I'm sorry for yeah. thinking that you had stopped doing that all altogether. Well, no, I, like I do consider it stopping journalism um, because it is. Even though like some of the articles might seem the same, I don't think it's the same career. So um, mm. I left EW in 2016. And then since then, I've been working at Bustle in branded content. Yeah. So how has that been? Like, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about how it's like really exciting for you to see Korean entertainment take, you know, the global stage as basically like the hottest thing in the world. And as an entertainment journalist, you're kind of on the inside in a way of that. And like, you're like an insider to Korean culture. And then but like you're sometimes having to sort of package your own culture to outsiders. Like, I'm really curious about what that whole experience was like. And, you know, and as a Korean American, of course, like you have that thing of like, am I an American? Am I Korean? Like, so how did you sort of manage all of that? I, I totally understand people who feel differently, but I actually always saw like having to be the Korean person to like jump on Asian stories when they would come up back then. Um, as always, I thought of it as an opportunity. So I was always really glad to do it, even though like you could definitely argue that like, oh, you shouldn't, that is a burden and you shouldn't have to, but I still just like took it on because um, I was excited to do that and like to share a culture. Even if I didn't know that much about it at the moment, I was still more qualified and more primed to learn that in a deeper way than a lot of my colleagues. So I love doing that. Um, but I have thought, that if I were still there, I would like have a total heyday with like, you know, getting different types of cover stories or like, Mm -hmm. I definitely would have been sent to Korea probably like four times. (laughs) So, uh, do you feel like you missed out? Like, do you regret not still being there? No, not really. Um, Anissa, like you definitely like seem like more of like a passionate journalist, but like for me, my journalism was like more, motivated by, by my love of like movies and entertainment so than the actual like act. Oh no, I am totally like, I've only been a journalist for seven months. Like I got into journalism. Still. Sorry to interrupt, but like I, I got hired onto WNC as a podcast producer and I've been working as like a movie critic, like a freelance movie critic, K-drama reviewer, 
And the podcasting was like a side hobby with Dramas Over Flowers. And then I learned how to do and I was like, I'm a writer. I'm always I was that's I always thought of myself (laughs) as a writer. And then like and then I was like, oh, I actually really love this audio production stuff. So now some of what I do is journalism because um, I'm working on like all the show. We have like nine shows at WNC and one of them is a news show. So like I did some field interviews for the first time like a month ago. So I'm really new to it. But that is journalism, you know, and like. Um, And yeah, and I was a journalist, but I don't think it was like really my passion because I feel like journalists, like true journalists have kind of like this insatiable desire to like kind of gather knowledge at all times. Whereas I'm also a curious person, but I'm more of a sustained focused person. And people I know, my old colleagues who are meant to be journalists are the types who know exactly what's going on. Um, If there's a newsworthy tweet, they've already seen it. Whereas like the limits of my curiosity are kind of like limited to like a few things at a time. Mm. So it was never a good fit because like so much of journalism, even entertainment journalism, like if you're on like a news cycle, you have to be aware of everything and you have to be interested in like everything that actually happens. Whereas like I'm interested in more like ideas or like people's personalities or like things like that. So um, yeah, it was never that strong of like a passion In retrospect, I loved working at EW, but I realized so much of it was getting to see cool things and also speak to cool people. But at a certain point, like my passion for like, ooh, I got to speak to this new celebrity or this new director was not like that exciting to me anymore. This is something I like sort of talk to about like journalists who are kind of in journalism because it involves like writing and storytelling, but they are clearly passionate about a different type of writing and storytelling. Being an entertainment journalist was my second dream job, whereas like being a writer or creator was my first dream job. And weirdly, I think having like your second dream job is like more dangerous than having like a job that is just like one that pays the bills. Oh, I see. You know? Yes. Because like your kind of identity gets wrapped up in a job that you really do care about or like your ego gets wrapped up in it. And it also (laughs) drinks up all of your creative juices and your energy because you actually are using a part of yourself that is sort of focused on like creativity and like whatever that dream is. So I feel that. Yeah. 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 So, um, it was really hard because like I stayed at EW for like maybe like two or three longer years longer than I wanted to, because it was just like, can I give this up? Just having like kind of unlimited access to like, you know, famous people or like people I really, really admire their work. Um, but then I realized like it wasn't really serving the ultimate goal anymore, even as great as it was for a long time. So, uh, but you know, there are so many journalists who are also novelists and they keep up both successfully. That's um, amazing to it, me. <laughs> the desire just wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Do those people not sleep? I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe they're just like really good at doing both quickly. <laughs> yeah. Some people are very fast. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. And like some people are very good multitaskers. I think like journalists are really good multitaskers. Like I am someone who tries to like actively close my tabs, whereas like a lot of journalists who are just really good at it are are very comfortable with having like 40 tabs up open at once. They even know like the keyboard shortcuts (laughs) to get between all of them really quickly. (laughs) I'm like, that's not me. Yeah, I constantly have 70 tabs open because I haven't read any of them yet. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. If I close it, I'm going to forget about it. But you know what? 
I think a lot of journalists are like that too. Secretly. <laughs> to just make it look That's like good to you know, they're, they're very we'll good. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I hate to leave this topic and go to a slightly more upsetting one. No, but, of course. You know, we have had such an amazing upsurgence of success for Korean artists in the United States specifically, but also just globally. You know, Squid Game took over the world last mm-hmm. year. BTS was like Artist of the Year on the AMAs and they spoke at the UN. So as a fan of Korean entertainment, that was really exciting to see. But at the same time, as an American, we had the highest spike in anti-Asian, like specifically anti-East Asian and Southeast Asian violence in recent memory. Um, And like, Mm -hmm. you know, the Atlanta shootings, but then also so many of the attacks that have happened since then and that aren't stopping. Mm -hmm. And like, as artists, a lot of times we talk about the power of art to change people's minds or the power of art and representation to like, you know, you said this really well in your thread of like showing people that we have souls. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering, have your thoughts changed at all in the last year about that? And like, how do you feel about the power of art to change the world, I guess? Well, I think you like nailed it on the head in the way you framed the question, because like you paired what's going on now with like all these huge successes for, you know, public successes for Asians. And I think like when marginalized voice seems to kind of ascend, um, that's when kind of the worst of like the resistance to that or racism, explicit racism comes out. And, you know, like the black community has just like really experienced that for so many years, just when black arts really ascended and they've ascended so many different times there's always a backlash and it's often violent because people do want to keep the status quo and in a way like i do think the anti-asian violence is tied to you know there's obviously you know racism about like who's being blamed for covid but there's also i think it is partly a reaction to asian people being more prominent in media and some people not liking it It's interesting, like even in very small, like insignificant ways, like it's funny how um, at the beginning of AANPI month, which wasn't really celebrated like that much, I think, before like the past two years. I love that there are so many people who are really lifting it up. But there's also like um, more explicit anti-Asian sentiment that comes with that. Like and this is actually the kind of racism that like. It doesn't like bother me. It, it does bother me, but it doesn't like stick with me that much. But like, just like pure, dumb, pure racism, just like, oh, it's like, I'm so tired of um, people talking about Asian American Heritage Month or like a lot of authors experience this. Like it was streams of like people on Amazon or Goodreads giving one star to like mm-hmm. every Asian author that they could find in reaction to AAPI Month. I think that like success is also paired with negativity. And that's something that I really explored in K-pop revolution too. So I, in a way, do think that like um, the increase in violence is weirdly tied to the increase in visibility and increase in success. And that's really sad, but I also just think it's the way racism works in so many ways. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if there's like an answer to that, but um, it is kind of like always a double-edged sword. But it's also paired with like so much more, um, I have to say, like when I talked about, you know, my attack in 2021, the response was actually so much more positive or like people took it so much more seriously in 2021 than when it actually happened in 2018. So there is like good that's really happening right now. And even though there's like 
an increase in like dumb, explicit, bold-faced, violent racism. I think that there's like improvements in, I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel this, but like, do you feel like people are more interested in more your experience even white people you know like the people not mm. just like racist white people but like yeah you definitely. know maybe white people who mean well well-meaning maybe, ones yeah well-meaning ones who maybe would have wouldn't have gotten certain things or maybe wouldn't have been as curious a few years ago are suddenly like hey like let's actually listen so i do think that there is like a pairing of good and yeah. bad always well, it's like you said before if you were invisible before and then you become visible like there's going to be a response to that visibility, like positive and negative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really yeah. thoughtful, actually. I hadn't thought about that connection while I was writing the question. I was just like, oh, at the same <laughs> time, a good thing happened, a really bad thing happened. But you're right. It's it's so yeah. true that, you know, it's like that sort of uh, zero sum game that is falsely built into these racist hierarchies that like there's a really limited piece of the pie for anyone who's not a white man and everyone else has to fight over that and it kind of creates this false sense of competition between people who really would be better off if they were like collaborating and being in coalition with each other right and you know and like you like you guys were saying earlier about YA and how it's like such a good opportunity for you know women and also um writers of color um, what I've noticed is like there are, you know, a handful of K-pop novel YA novels. I really feel like maybe if it had been four years ago, there would have been more of like an inclination to like compete with each other. But it's been really awesome just like really joining forces because there really is room. And um actually like some of my biggest sales boosts happen when other k-pop novels debut because like i think you know suddenly there are mm. roundups or suddenly mm. we're all like featured at once at barnes and noble on a stand you know so i do kind of feel like just knowing how the landscape was four years ago i do think that the tone might have been a little more competitive but now it's like not whatsoever at all that's actually surprisingly profound because <laughs> it's it's true that there is space but we act like that space is finite and yeah, yeah, it's a tactic of white supremacy, <laughs> Saya. That we're yeah. all caught up on in it. And I'm so glad that like so many of us are being like, hey, this is fake. We don't have to be subjected to this. And I think mm -hmm. honestly, I started seeing a lot of that after Trump was elected because he didn't yes. care. Like he went after everyone. He went after the disabled. He went <laughs> after Muslims. He went after Latinos. He went after like trans people. Like he didn't care. He just hates everybody. And so we were like, hey, like we have right. a common enemy. And also none of us can actually fight this huge, like the way that he gave voice to like, and kind of gave permission to so many people to like openly and violently express their racism, I think took a lot of us by surprise. And we were like, oh, like none right. of us can fight this on our own. And so we didn't have a choice mm -hmm. other than to join up with each other and be like, oh, hey, we actually yeah. have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. Why are we yeah, falling exactly. into this toxic narrative of like, you know, that mm -hmm. we're in competition with each other? Right, exactly. And that competition culture is, I mean, that's just capitalism, mm -hmm. isn't it? So Exactly. And like, I actually do think that that... That's what did kind of bother me about that incident on Twitter with the white K-pop journalists, because I actually do think that might have been rooted in like, oh, we are writers in the K-pop space. And like, I really feel like it might have been motivated by like, this is an opportunity that someone else is taking instead of you know, there is space for all of us. Um, and also, like, my response would be excitement that, like, this thing that I love and that I've devoted my career to, someone has written a book 
which like I can read and share with people. Like, I don't understand this. Right. And like uh, what bothered me is like they were using social media and and like I do think that there has been like a good response to like the Trump thing. And I do think that is why people get really passionate on social media to fight that. Like we're all like we were all woken up and we don't want to ever slide back. And like, we want to remind each other of like what we don't want to slide back into. Mm-hmm. But then like, I do see it being used for petty reasons, but it seems like a higher purpose. You yes, know what I 100%. mean? And that's what bothers me. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, can we please stop that? Because that kind of undercuts what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it's actually more pernicious because that's why I was saying when like explicitly racist people say something racist, on Twitter, I'm just like, it doesn't, it's, it's so stupid. It doesn't bother me as much Mm. as someone who's like more underhanded or they're trying to pretend that they care or like are about these issues Mm. when they are doing Mm -hmm. it for petty reasons. Right. You know, like that's more insidious than the overt racism, right? Yes. And that's what I try to get to with the villain. I was just going to say, (laughs) you really did a really great job with Mm -hmm. sort of weaving that into the (laughs) second I enjoyed that storyline so much. No, that's why, like, I think there is such a limit to, like, activism on social media. I think it's so important and so great. But, like, I do think there's a limit to it because it isn't always action, but it feels like it is to say the right thing. Totally. But I think it's, like, very easy to know how to say the right thing, you know? Like, all you have to do is just see what's trending. And that's what you're supposed to say. But because you're making it so easy to you know, appear like you're saying you're right. Um, People can easily just like pretend to be, you know, constantly. (laughs) And I see that happening all the time. And it Mm -hmm. feels so, Mm -hmm. it feels so obvious. Um, But people spend too much time policing what people say. And I'm like, it's so, it can be kind of empty. And like, people can pretend so easily that like, can we kind of focus on what people are doing? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this has all been very serious and deep and profound, <laughs> but we have some really light-hearted questions oh, that I we kind of want to close on. Although yeah, I'm not sure if the Sasen question is light. We'll talk about Sasen. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and then we will talk about light-hearted things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so book two really delves deep into Sasen culture and sort of you know <laughs> what these obsessive stalker quote-unquote fans do to get close to celebrities and. And they're like any kind of attention, even bad attention. Yes. So do you think that the change in that saucing behavior needs to come from the side of the fans? Or do you think it's the companies that sort of subtly encourage this behavior and the the larger landscape? Like, is that how it's going to change? Like, what do you think is the solution? Oh, gosh. I mean, like, I... That's so hard to say because, like, I do think that companies do have the power to screen as much as they can but you also can't control like this many individuals really i do think that like maybe in the service of like working really fast and making lots of money really fast maybe like um some companies don't really invest in like the safety aspect as much as they could but i do think that like they actually do spend a lot of time doing that as well but yeah that's so hard because like getting close to celebrities it does seem like so possible now, um, especially because celebrities seem so available um, on social media. But I don't really have an answer for that because like, it does seem horrifying. It's not something that I've like really experienced firsthand. But I do think it is true that like, it is just such a tiny, tiny percentage of the fandom. But I also think that it probably takes up a lot of the idol's thoughts, like Mm -hmm. a disproportionate number, like amount of their brain space, because like, it is so scary. 
But yeah, I think that's true of like anything you do in public too. But to them, there's more consequences. But like the negative aspects of something or the negative reactions take up more of your thoughts, even though they're a small, tiny, tiny percentage of what's out there. So I don't know. I just feel for them. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's like something that the government needs to regulate. Like who yeah. is watching these sussing taxis. Like why are, why is that something that's just available for kids to hire all day? <laughs> just blows my mind. I know it's completely <laughs> insane. And like, you know what, but like you guys were saying, like for problems like that, there are systemic issues. And like, even though this happens all around the world, I think part of the reason why this is happening with like certain young people is like sometimes there, there doesn't seem to be that much hope for them to accomplish like a lot themselves because there are so few opportunities and like old school gatekeepers make things so difficult that like maybe instead of pursuing their own dreams, they really want to pursue acknowledgement from people who they admire. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do think there is a systemic element of it, too. For sure. Oh, I actually found that theme in your book really interesting because, like, Candace is pushing against this kind of boomer worldview, right? right? Which is kind of the world we live in Mm -hmm. right now because, you know, all of us not only have come of age, we are actually adults going into middle age and we are still ruled Mm -hmm. by boomers. So it's kind of, it, it seems to reflect this real world problem that we have like how do you continue to get on how do you change a world where the top tier cannot yeah, be changed and like, you know i gather that like the three of us are like very pretty similar in age but it's interesting how like i struggle with this because i think like i don't know a lot of millennials um came of age when we were playing the game a bit more of the boomers mm. and like i'm very excited by like when i see like you know, Gen Z, like kind of refusing. But then I also kind of feel like, well, we did that where we played the game, like, you know, and like, it's almost (laughs) just like, the whole goal is for people not to have to play the game, but it's almost just like, I did it, maybe other people should too. But it's also like, you're playing a game of chess, you've knocked out a piece and the piece you've knocked out Exactly. So you're like, you're stuck. Exactly. And that's like the millennial um, state of being is that we've knocked out the pieces, but we are not able to move on to the squares because the pieces won't vacate. Right. And then the Gen Z are like (laughs) watching us and they're like, that ain't working. I'm just going to burn the whole chess set and throw the trash. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So like, I don't know, in the second book, I kind of explore like, you know, the first book is very like lines drawn boomer versus Gen Z. But like, I kind of in the second book add like a millennial element to it and like just Mm. kind of show that like how very smart. Yeah, the millennials can actually Mm -hmm. be like kind of the worst gatekeepers of all just because we've experienced both. (laughs) So like, even though the kind of main villain of the second book is like a millennial, it's just like, I kind of put like things that like I see in millennial culture into her. (laughs) Mm. And like, you know, I don't think of it as like, totally not understandable I kind of like there's aspects of her that are like totally just like complete villainous but then there are aspects of her I'm like I understand why one per one someone might think this way if they've kind of like adopted too much of that like bad messaging mm-hmm. from the time they were born right mm. and can I just say that I I visualized her as Suyoung from <gasps> as an as an as an right <laughs> as her character in Run oh my god that is so <laughs> that's who good. I saw in my head yeah you know what for her I like there were so many people I could imagine being her because like I feel like there is like a character in almost every k-drama that is like 
that kind of character mm-hmm. or like looks like her, you know, just right, like right. impossibly beautiful, like 30 something at the like height of her game. Like I did watch a part of Startup and I was like, there's so many characters in the show that would be exactly her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She was very K-drama, but right. like not in a cliched way, but in a really like, like a, oh, mm-hmm. I recognize you kind right. of way. Even yeah. with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> Now we are really going to go on to the lighter okay, things cool. because we should always wind down on something yeah. nice. Um, so your three-week trip in in Seoul with Entertainment Weekly, you have said in various places that you spoke to many, many mm-hmm. people, one of them being Juan, one of them being uh, Bong Juno. Who else did you speak to? And oh, what did Juan. Um, oh, gosh. I need to look <laughs> back at his um, transcript. No, it's funny because um, my mom, who actually li- moved to Korea after I finished college, um, she was my translator. And she's also the one who got me all these interviews because like, I realized like being from Entertainment Weekly in America didn't help that much. But mm. somehow she just managed to get all these interviews for me, even though she has nothing to do with the entertainment world. But um, I remember her being so charmed by Juwon. And like she was all just like, oh, I don't care about celebrities. But then once like she was there, she was just like, <laughs> so she actually ended up like ignoring a lot of my questions and asking her own better <laughs> questions. Um, I forget what she oh, yeah, that's we, amazing. We visited him on set. He was, I don't remember the name of the K drama that he was filming at the time, but it was. 2018 was it no young? it was 2014 no, it, it was a long time ago he was being a condu- he was a conductor oh, of, of uh, orchestra. yeah yeah yeah, yeah it was Cantabine? that one so so he went on set and like um yeah he was like super polite we were talking about like a lot of um k-dramas being made into american stuff he was like very sad that he was missing this boat because he didn't think that he spoke good enough english to really take advantage of this Um, Because he didn't speak any, like, barely spoke any English. And he's just like, oh, my God, I really, really wish I spoke English. Um, Because, like, he felt like there were so many opportunities if he Mm. had. Um, He was like, I want to be in Marvel movies. I want to be in, like, everything like that. But it's, like, a little bit hard um, not speaking English. It's ironic because his drama, The The Good Doctor, is, like, one of the biggest cross-the-pond hits, right? Like, it's one of the most successful, you know, adapted into English. Probably the only successful. That's what was happening. <laughs> yeah. And those the rights to that were being acquired right when I was there. So he was that's I think that is what oh, um started that conversation because he was oh, like, I would have he was like, I would have loved to like play this myself. That but would be so good. I was so mad yeah. that they cast I, that they cast that with like a white dude. I was like, you couldn't find a Korean yeah. American to play the you could oh. exactly I know. I think for a while it was gonna be like Daniel Day Kim, which would have been awesome, but yeah. <laughs> All of these missed mm. opportunities. Well, at least they're getting some more now. Yeah, for sure. Oh, was that the end of that? What about Bong Juno? <laughs> oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, um, uh, oh, I talked to Tiffany Young. Ooh, oh, nice. Um, and that was awesome. Um, Girls' Generation was like really. Um, they were on hiatus at the time. Um, the Jessica Jung stuff was oh, really fresh, yeah. but like. I was being told so many times, like, do not talk about it, do not talk about it, do not talk about it. So I was like, I'm, I was, like, genuinely not going to talk about it. In Hollywood, like, at Entertainment Weekly, like, if there's something that the publicists say, like, don't talk about it, like, you would just ask anyway at the very end. That was always my trick because, like, if you didn't ask the question, like, your editor would get really mad at you. But I knew that things were different in Korean entertainment media and I wanted to be really respectful, so I definitely didn't talk about it. It was a very... um what I noticed about all these interviews, actually Juwon was an exception, but like 
he was open to talk about anything, but um, it was so mm-hmm. regulated. Like they really wanted to inspect every single question. What happened to me a lot was um, I went to a bunch of sets to talk to actors. And this happened like over and over again, where I made all these arrangements. I went to the other side of Korea sometimes to go to these places. And then like suddenly when it was time for the interview, the person wouldn't come out of their dressing room. Um, and it's because like they had an accident. Um, they use the word sagol. And this shows how bad my Korean is. I always associate the word sagol with car accident. So I was like, oh my God, they were in a car accident. And they, but the, what they meant was they had a gaffe in an interview where they uh. said something embarrassing. So then suddenly they were not going to do interviews for the next wow. two months. And I was like, I was there for three weeks. How did this happen so many times where <laughs> someone just had a gaffe? But I just think that like the things that count as a gaffe are the bar is so either high or low. Like um, it's so easy to yeah. get controversy that like any little thing can be a big deal. Um, I remember like the first time I heard scandal used in the way it is in the context of Korean entertainment. Yeah. I was like, wait, that's a scandal? Right. And I I just wanted to make it so clear that like Entertainment Weekly readers, they don't really care about these scandals. They don't know about them. And even if they did, they'd be like, that's not a scandal. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I'm not interested in this. I'm not going to ask these questions. But like even as much as I could assure them, like and I definitely didn't have a reputation for doing like tough interviews or anything like that. Yeah, it was so weird. But um, I did. uh, So I think you might have seen in other interviews that like I actually didn't get to write the story because um, when I was flying back to America, the editor in chief of Entertainment Weekly got fired for someone else. That happens all the time in magazines, um, very unexpectedly. And the new editor just wasn't interested in the story. So I actually did all that work and I didn't even start it. But Mm -hmm. I kept all the interviews and I actually ended up using a lot of it for, for K-pop Confidential. Can I ask you? Yeah. Because, again, in a different interview, I've either heard or read, but um, the details that you used for Candace's trainee life, that some of them you made up and some of, like, mm-hmm. most of them were real. But p- other people who are in the industry, they were like, how did you know that? So yeah. could you say which ones you yes. made up? So there was a lot that I made up because like I definitely did. I did a lot of research. Um, I talked to people who had been through the training process before and actually even ones that never debuted, they didn't really want to get that deep. So but I did learn some like, you know, nice details, but I made up certain things that were like obviously made up um, because I just didn't want anyone to think that this was based on a real Mm. um, company. So um First of all, the fact that all the um, trainees live in a skyscraper along with like the offices is like so like obviously fake. Um, and I knew that. <laughs> I just thought it would be like, I thought it'd it's be fun. fun though. It's yeah. fun. <laughs> it's like, like a bunker. Yeah, anytime anyone's pointed out that that's like not realistic, I'm like, yeah, of course. It's <laughs> like, fiction. Yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was like, I wanted that to be fun. I made it a lot more like, reality show based even before they start filming it as an actual reality show and like you know the fact that there are 50 of each like girls and Mm. boys and they but like this is what happens when you're really deep into a project and you've already researched a lot like the stuff that you start making up like ends up being real you know like um so one thing that i made up was um in the training cafeteria the glass between the um, boys section and the girls section is clear. And 
I actually just completely made up like the that whole thing and also a rationale for it. That's yeah, real. I was just like, I had Candace say, oh, I bet it's because um, the executives think that girls will eat less if they're being watched by boys. And like that kind of problematic thinking just like came into my head because I'd been researching so much that it just made sense for the fictional mm-hmm. world I was creating. But I was told by one of the former trainees, like, oh my God, that was, they actually did do that. I've never seen that talked about anywhere. How did you like find that? And I was wow. like, I was like, it, it just crazy. made sense to me in the world. So yeah, like things like that. Um, there, there are other like little examples that just like came up where I was like, okay, I made, I made this up because like at a certain point, even with like research-based fiction, you do have to start like making things up. But, like, it needs to, like, make sense for the world that you're creating. Mm. But, like, some of it ended up being real. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you start to think, like, the people who are doing all of this, then. Yeah. It's a little scary. I was just like, oh, I can't believe I thought about the way, like, a boomer, you know, K-pop exec would think. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) There's that empathy coming through. (laughs) (laughs) So... I know you said you're not like a hardcore K-drama fan um, Mm -hmm. the way we are. We're total addicts. But is there like a favorite drama that you're either watching right now or something that's your favorite drama right now? Um, Ooh, so I am actually watching a lot of historicals. Um, Which ones? Okay, so it's because I'm working on a historical YA Korean novel and... I'm watching Queen Sunduk, which is like so old school. Oh, classic. classic. Yeah. I know. And it's just like so many episodes. And like, you know, because I've gotten used to like modern K-dramas, like I'm like, ooh, this looks like what my parents used to watch. Um, Do you need subtitles? Yes, I definitely need subtitles. Like I can watch an episode. And I'm like, oh, I feel like I understood what that was about. But then when I actually see mm-hmm. the subtitles, I was like, oh, there's so many like implications that I didn't understand. Right. So um, mm-hmm. I'm watching that. I'm watching um, Huarang. I love Huarang. Nobody loves it but me. <laughs> Saya yeah. is our resident lover of Huarang. I, I mean, love Huarang so, so much. over the top. And, yeah, and I'm actually trying not to be too influenced by that because, like, it's so not historical. It's, not, it's, not, oh. it's not trying to Do you know what be, it is? So it's it, a YA novel. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I actually like the comedic way that they're like portraying the Huarang because I, it is kind of like I think there is like a comedy aspect to that Huarang culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also watching. Oh, I watched this on my, my flight to Korea recently. Uh, I forget what the title is in Korean, but it's um rookie historian. Rookie historian, we love that yeah. one. Oh, yeah, yeah we're huge it. fans. It's so smart. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Oh I, god! Yeah, that and one's I, so good. And I love the character. She's so like she's so bold and she's so smart. And like the acting is so fun. You may like Mr. Queen if you haven't watched it already. Oh, I should. No, that is on mm-hmm. my list. Yeah, Shin Hye-sun is such a luminous and hilarious. Like she is such an incredible performer. She plays like three roles, oh, and my it god. seems like effortless. She's so funny. Mm-hmm. Like her playing a man in a woman's body is just oh my god genius yeah yeah like i don't even want to say anything because i don't want to spoil it for you like just experience it i have some binging in my near future (laughs) yeah the ending i did find a little disappointing so just to forewarn you but like episodes like 19 one through 19 and a half were brilliant okay it's really hard to stick an ending (laughs) it really is yeah yeah (laughs) yeah So the last year has actually been a pretty interesting year for music dramas. Like we had 
a few, but did you manage to catch any of them? Do you have a favorite in music dramas? No, I actually, I have this weird thing where like when I am writing a certain thing, I try not to kind of delve into things that are like too literally related. That's why when I was writing K-pop Confidential, I actually was watching Sky Castle. I don't remember if we talked about this on (laughs) while we were recording or before the recording, but like (laughs) um, it it has a lot of the same like emotions and themes, but it's not literally about it Mm -hmm. because like I never wanted to copy anything too um, closely. And now that I'm like for now done with writing about like K-pop stories, like now I'm just like, okay, like now I want to break. No, you can't say that. You said elsewhere that there's another Candace book coming. Well, it's not necessarily coming, but I have an idea for one. Um, So I'm actually, I am optimistic that I'll get to write it someday, but I'm not currently working on it. But um, no, I thought it was a set in stone sequel. No, no. Um, So it is, um, it would be like, them breaking into America and partnering with a um, American label. Mm. I'm ready. And every all the hijinks that go with that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like I'm. Yeah, mm. I'm ready too. Yeah, yeah, and I want like um, Candice is also working on her soul English language solo debut, and her label pairs her with a um, big, big, big female white pop star, and she kind of gets like into her squad <laughs> mm, um, so much to unpack yeah I love yeah. It. and that like leads to a lot of drama and like you know aspects of like tokenism and stuff that isn't really explored mm. yet in the other books do you find yourself sort of writing bits of it in your head a little bit um especially because i want this to be set in L- primarily la and like mm. um that's where i'm currently living so i'm just like ooh, it's so weird to be at the place where like the book is set my book happens <laughs> yeah, <right>? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe so we were going to ask you to recommend to our listeners like if you love uh, K-pop Confidential and Revolution like watch this drama but I guess do, would you have like comps for those in K-drama not really we would yeah, <laughs> yeah come on Saya yeah, you no, recommend something you guys are more the experts uh, well I'd say definitely imitation Anissa you'll probably oh, say Idol the Coup yeah and those were like they, they were from last year and they were very very good about showing um, idol life, trainee life, the difficulties of, you know, debuting. Mm. Um, and I think like imitation was a bit more lighthearted, whereas um, idol, that was from the writer of Missing, right? Yeah. Mm. So idol, the coup was much more serious and a lot more nuanced. And there was also no romance in that, which is a pretty big change from previous, you know, idol centric dramas. They always like imitation had a romance. Idol easily could have had a romance like they had characters who were like perfectly set up to be in a love triangle and the writer was just like I'm not interested in this and I I think it was such a good idea to do that because I feel like especially when you're writing like a really complex ensemble like character-based drama when the romance kicks in sometimes it can like steal all the oxygen Mm, from all the other interesting things that are happening in the story and they just were like we're just not doing that and they and it was just like such a brilliant drama about like these five girls and who they are. And like, it also picks up in a really interesting spot because they're like basically about to be disbanded because they haven't been successful. Oh man. So it's just like a really amazing story about like after your dreams fail, then how do you figure out who you want to be and what your dream really is? so good. You should watch it. I know you're like tired of the idol stuff, (laughs) but it's like for anyone, a recommendation. Okay, you have really like, yeah, sold me on that one. I'm going to add one more which is um, the currently airing drama Shooting Stars, which is also um, 
subtitled in a, a slightly different way as well, as it, with an S-H um, asterisk asterisk T-I-N-G. So <laughs> that, it's kind of a double entendre in Korean and in English, oh my which God. is so clever. That's so clever. brilliant. <laughs> um, because like shooting star in Korean is like pyol dung pyol, right? Oh, so yeah. It's kind of playing on that even in the English title, which is so clever. Oh, yeah, wow. Anyway. <laughs> it's so but rare that that works out so perfectly. It is. It really yeah. is. It's like it's yes. one of those almost never happens instances of it being absolutely perfect. Yeah. So what that drama does is it follows this sort of top star actor, um, but it's not about him. It's about the people, the staff around him who sort of manage every aspect of his appearance and his image and all of those things so it's about that sort of the industry around the star so it's very behind the scenes it feels like it as I was reading the book again I visualized Wanjay as the the lead guy of of shooting star because <laughs> they just had that sort of top star vibe right yeah yeah uh, it do, I have to warn you it does like particularly in the first episode it has this really mm, sort of eye-rolling your mileage may vary at how offensive you find it, but they do this whole, he spends a year in Africa, which is oh. one dusty village, <laughs> which needs yeah. a while. <laughs> An unnamed, like, it's Africa. Yeah. yeah, that sounds rough. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds very country of Africa. <laughs> yes, in, in the country of Africa. <laughs> there's also oh, no. a, <laughs> there's also a quite um, clear sort of attempts assault not sexual assault just kind of a physical assault type of thing mm. but also it just you, it's you, like your mileage may vary you can close your eyes to that and move on and the rest of the drama is good but those are two sort of sticky points definitely in the first episode oh wow Ugh. they go there <laughs> we just pretend that it didn't happen sometimes you can pretend sometimes you can't in this case i kind of can yeah i mean it's so very so much from person to person what we're yes. kind of willing to be like okay mm -hmm. i'll give you this right yeah yeah Oh, we took it dark again. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. It's a very funny drama. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much all of our questions. Awesome. We're very excited to hear if you're at a stage to share about your like saga YA novel, Ooh, your historical one. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about that? So it is so different um, from the K-pop books. It's going to be. So I would say like, even though um, K-pop Confidential and Revolution are firmly YA, they were kind of positioned as kind of like young YA, like tweeny. very, yeah, very tweeny or mm. like at least like tween safe. Mm. But uh, this one's like dark and violent. So it definitely takes place in the Sheila dynasty around this time of Queen Sunduk. Mm. So it's not based on Queen Sunduk, but it is like the time and like it is like a female, you know, ruler. And it involves some magic powers, though. So um, there's so like what a kind slight, of genre? It's like historical, actual, like kind of superhero-y. Oh, okay. So it's like historical fantasy a little bit? Yeah, yeah. That's um, cool. And That's like, so cool. When is it coming out? <laughs> Oh, no. Like, okay, so see, like, this is such like a reset. And I don't want to necessarily um, stay at the same publisher, although I'd be open to it. But like, um, I want to open it up. So I'm, I'm just like pitching it from scratch. So oh, wow. um, yeah, but like, it's gonna be like, kind of like scary and violent in some ways. But like, I kind of fantasize a lot of things that are like real. So um have a lot of like historical dramas talked about like, you know, jingle, like sacred bone, true bone, bone rank. 
Um, Hwarang does. Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely Hwarang does. does. Yeah, but I make that more literal. Like, um, there's like a magician in the court palace who will like test people's bone marrow to see if they really are at the high rank that they should be. Um, and it involves That's like very dark. Yeah. And like, you know, this new queen kind of wants to like go up against that. And it definitely has like a lot of drama around like whether, um, you know, a female will be allowed to be sovereign of this kingdom and everything. Um, is she the protagonist? Yes. Yeah. And the narrator. And like the thing is, um, so a lot of the all the K dramas that I've seen that are historical, like even if they do have some comedy in them, they do have that like kind of old timey tone and voice. And that's true of like historical um, novels in English too. Like not just the dialogue is formal, but like the actual writing is like very formal. But I actually want the um, narration to feel kind of contemporary, not in terms of like making pop culture references like Candace does, but like for her to sound like a real person because um, I figure even if she did or talk like that in that world, at least in her own head, she was like contemporary to herself, you know? So um, it has like Mm, a different kind of voice. Yeah. Well, we are like ready to read that tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) We have to be patient and wait until you're ready to share it with us. But that sounds really exciting. Oh, thank you. And I am going to start working, go back to my, um, autobiographical, very realistic um, adult novel. <laughs> so That's amazing. So much to look forward to. And we yes. have kept you two and a half hours. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, Thank yeah. you so much. It flew and by. And has been so interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Yes. Um, Stefan M. Lee on Twitter and Stepefin on Instagram. It's like Stefan with an extra EP in the middle. And then TikTok, I don't have any videos yet, but um, I'm definitely going to post my first one this week. Um, but that is at Stefan M. Lee. Nice. It's mm. one of those empty accounts for now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by the time this comes out, your TikTok video will already be out. Can you give I us hope a, so. sort of a Oh, no, I'm not even like, I don't have anything Oh, in you mind. didn't have anything planned? <laughs> no, it's just that like, okay, I've like hung out with a lot of YA authors lately at events because we finally started doing in-person events again. And like, all of them are just like, oh my God, like TikTok is the only kind of- BookTok. Yeah, BookTok is yes. the only thing that actually sells books or like creates an audience. They're That's like, true. you need to get on it like yesterday. Mm. And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. So <laughs> This is what my sister tells me. I'm like, I, yeah. don't, I can't do any more social medias, but she's 23. So she's like, she has so it's like, TikTok. It's she tells me about nature. all the trends. I know yeah, we're yeah, being exactly. such millennials right now being like, I, I know, can't right? do it. Yeah. <laughs> There's only so, so much a person can manage. Exactly. Yeah. So, Saya, where can people find us on the internet? They can find us on Twitter at Dramas Overflow. Uh, and I am at Not Now Saya. And I am at Anissa Khalifa underscore. And you can find us on Instagram at Dramas Overflowers underscore. You can also look us up on Facebook. And our website is dramasoverflowers.net. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter for updates on new episodes and any random extra things that we're doing, like, you know, upcoming interviews and all of that. And Patreon bonuses. And Dramas Over Flowers is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And make sure you check the description of this interview because we will share the link for where you can buy Stevens books. Yay. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
拜，拜。Bye <笑>